Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am honored and excited to be welcoming Dr. Bruce Perry. Dr. Perry is one of the world's leading experts on childhood trauma. His clinical research and practice focuses on examining the long-term effects of trauma in children, adolescents, and adults. Over the last 30 years, his work on the impact of abuse, neglect, and trauma on the developing brain has impacted clinical practice programs and policy worldwide. Currently, Dr. Perry serves as the principal member of the Neurosequential Network. He is the Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy, and he's an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine located in Chicago, Illinois. He has written several best-selling books, including his most recent book that he co-authored with Oprah, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing, which looks at and explains how childhood trauma impacts our adult lives, health, and behavior. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Next time you're in a situation with someone, instead of thinking about what's wrong with them, think about what happened to them. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasure's first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with The Street artist wordsmith together we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase and all proceeds will be going to pause chicago and pets for vets make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media usernames and purchase links, can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for joining me today. It's truly such an honor. And with this episode, we're going to do it a little bit different because we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. Over the last 30 years, you have been an active teacher, clinician, researcher in children's mental health and neurosciences, holding a variety of academic positions. Your work has impacted those who have been abused, neglected, or dealt with trauma and really looked at developing brain. How did you choose this journey or did this journey ultimately choose you? That is a great question. So first of all, thank you for having me. I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, I have to say, I there were parts of the journey where there were intentional choices, and then there were a number of serendipitous turns. And I think it started really kind of with a serendipitous uh, assignment uh, to a freshman seminar series when I went to college. And the faculty advisor who ran that freshman seminar is a gentleman named Seymour Levine, who is a pioneer, a giant, in the field of stress and studying the development of stress response systems. And he and his team had just uh, made the observation that a very, very brief stress during early uh, life profoundly changed the brain and the ability of rats to regulate stress. 
And so I was just struck by the fact that you could have an experience that was minutes long when you're a little rat pup and that that would have really profound functional manifestations when you're an adult. And again, from that point forward, I really was interested in developmental experience and development. And it, 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 But prior to that, I was kind of primed to think in that way because I was very, very much interested in history. And I had really, from the time I could read, been reading little history books and um, was well aware of the fact that the present is best understood if you recognize how we got to this place, how we got to this moment in time. Now in history, you're kind of looking at different, a variety of different factors, but in, it's the same situation with human beings. You kind of look at their personal history. You know, how did you get to the point where you uh, are afraid of dogs? Or how did you get to the point where you don't like to travel? Where did you get to the point where you decided you wanted to do podcasts? You know, there's some there's a trajectory that helps uh, anybody understand themselves and helps you understand other people. Your most recent book that you co-authored with Oprah, What Happened to You, was fascinating to me because I always remember growing up with people saying, well, what's wrong with you? And I believe you had a colleague, Sandra Bloom, who change the phrase instead of what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Why is it so important that that shift in language was made? I think the all of us who are kind of developmentalists or really anybody trained in uh, traditional mental health practices learns about the importance of your family and your upbringing and your culture and the, the things that kind of, like I said, lead to the present functioning. But despite knowing that, our, our formulations about diagnosis and labeling individuals all was about what's wrong with you right now. And it was all about, it's all looking at pathology, you know, uh, what's wrong with your attention systems? What's wrong with your fine motor systems? What's wrong with your ability to form relationships? And and then through quantifying that, putting somebody in a box, giving them a label. And once you learn a little bit about developmental trauma and the, and the incredible impact it can have on the developing brain and functioning, you begin to realize that uh, the right question is, let's back up and look at how somebody got to this point. And so the, the beauty of the reframing in that one sentence is that it was it, it, it very quickly helped people connect with that set of ideas. And I, I think, you know, human people like, uh, I don't want to say jing, jingoistic, but simple things that capture truth are very powerful. And I think that that's kind of why that phrase rings true with a lot of people. So when we talk about trauma, I think a lot of people think of these big events, uh, wars, combat, physical abuse, uh, natural disasters. But when I was reading this book and when you start to think about it, trauma can be something so small from an early age, whether um, I know in one of your books, there's a young man who had like 18 nannies and right. just couldn't really connect uh, with others or think about others. Can you talk to our listeners and give a definition, not one's not going to fit all, but about what is trauma and how can we really explain it? Yeah. You know, it's uh, the, the term trauma, everybody uses it. I mean, you know, people say, oh my God, going to the grocery store was traumatic. There were so many people in line or whatever. And, and we tend to misuse it. And the the professionals that study it um, have a long history of arguing about what what is trauma. Even we change the definition in the DSM every time we do a new version. And so this is not an easy task. Um, and I think it's because there are multiple factors that are involved in understanding whether or not an experience is going to have uh, a negative impact on the brain and how the brain works. So I think one of the most useful things 
the useful exercises in, in grappling with the definition was by a work group at SAMHSA, which is a one of the federal um, or agencies that manages mental health issues in the U.S. And this group basically, after a long period of deliberation, decided that probably the most useful way to think about it was using this 3E framework. And the E, the first E is, of course, the event. So just as you pointed out, most people go, wow, you know, you witnessed a murder. That sounds like a pretty traumatic event. Um, or you are a refugee. That sounds like you went through a lot of trauma. And But <clears throat> it's interesting that there are a child who has autism, for example, uh, a change in a teacher in a classroom may actually have as much impact on that person's stress response system and how it's overactive and overly reactive as another person witnessing a murder. And so the second E is really important, and that is the experience of the person during the event. So the experience of a child with autism, having a, a brand new teacher, potentially can be overwhelming. And, and that will activate their stress response system in a prolonged and unpredictable way and lead to the third thing, which is the effects. What are the effects of having this experience and, and you know having this event and experiencing it a certain way? And the effects are, uh, if it is if it does have a certain pattern, if it is activates these systems in extreme and prolonged ways or unpredictable ways, you end up with alterations in the way important systems in your body work. And these are systems that are are pervasive. They they influence really every aspect of your body. You know your your immune system, your heart, your lung, your gut, um, all the systems in your brain that are involved in thinking and feeling and behaving. So you can have a very complex uh, impact from the experience that you had from being in an event, and so. It, that's sort of a convoluted, but I think a, 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 a manageable and fair uh, understanding of the, the range of issues that come into play when you're studying trauma or talking about trauma. So, for example, I, you know, we, have, we know kids that were um, in uh, an event that you would think would be traumatic, but their experience was, was not extreme internally. They didn't have any extreme internal symptoms that were prolonged they had some initial acute symptoms that you were not unreasonable but you know three months later it had not affected them in any enduring and persisting way whereas other children in the same event um, had long-term problems with attention and sleep and impulsivity and and so forth so when i was preparing for this interview what kind of came to mind for me is that trauma and empathy run parallel to some extent. And what I mean by that, you just said, I could go through an experience with someone else. I could come out feeling one way. Someone else could come out feeling another way, but it's not fair for me to say, well, I'm fine. You should be fine. Like that's where empathy should kind of take more of a role is be empathetic that you could have both experienced something, but how you're coping or how you're reacting um, can be completely different. Now, when exactly. we, when I think about we, it's very rare, but we have these bigger events as a society, it's going to be traumatic. The first one I think of is 9-11 and obviously this pandemic and people are all grappling with it and dealing with it in very different ways. What do you think about now in five years, what kind of trauma do you think we'll start to see when we're looking back on the pandemic, what comes to mind to me is like the little kids going to school wearing masks, like, will that affect them? Will they have issues connecting? Are they going to be worried about germs? Those kind of questions. Right. right. 
Well, again, one of the things that's helpful to kind of address that 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 question, Mallory, is is go back to the three E thing. So the pen, the experience on one level, yes, we are all in the pandemic, but if you sort of look a little bit deeper, the experience of of one person might be different than the experience of another person. Not just the way they handle it internally, but you know, some people uh, lost a paycheck and other people didn't lose a paycheck. Some people lost a family member and other people didn't lose a family member. Um, some people had profound sort of community disruptions and other people didn't have that. And different parts of the, this country alone handled it very differently. And so there's a, even though we're all having, you know, the pandemic is reaching everybody in some way, we're not all having the same experience. Uh, we're not all having the same event, rather. Now, the experience, again, is going to be dramatically influenced by a variety of factors. You know, if you have safe and stable connections at home, that will buffer a lot of the internal distress that a child might feel in the midst of all of this. But if you've got parents that are overwhelmed because they're dealing with a sick parent, their own sick parent in a hospital, and they're not around as much, you, the fears of a child can escalate and, and so forth. And, and so I think that, again, for some people, the experience part will be very challenging and will result in long-term effects and for other people it won't now we, we're seeing if you look at the population as a whole we're already seeing evidence of the negative effects of this more anxiety more depression um, there's more substance relapse from people that had so, sort of were managing their substance use issues and so i think um as the impact of the pandemic on teachers and teachers leaving the system and difficulty maintaining workers in a bunch of environments, I really think that we're going to have a four, five, six, seven year echo of this negative experience, event that will cause significant distress for many, many people. And then as a result, cause significant long-term effects. I really do think that this, we, we'll see the consequences of this manifest in a lot of different ways for the next five to 10 years. And then when you think about that, it gets passed on from generation. Cause if you yourself are a parent dealing with trauma and you don't know how to handle it, then it goes to the younger generation. Your kids might pick up on things and um, I'm at the age where people I know are starting to have kids and they'll make comments like, oh, my kid will never remember this. They're too young. And I mm. go, wait, stop. You have to read this book. No, it, you don't realize how this can trickle or how this can affect them. Um, can you talk about why those first, I think you said like for sure the first four years are just so critical um, with brain development for our listeners? Yeah, you know, it's the, the brain is this incredibly complex, remarkable organ, you know, 86 billion neurons and trillions of synaptic connections. And, but it, it do, just doesn't pop into existence. You know, when you're born, you don't have a fully organized brain like you have a fully organized heart. I mean, you, you have a little baby heart, but it's doing what the heart does and it's just gonna get bigger and bigger, but it will be the same organ. The brain, is not doing what you're going to always be doing. The brain is kind of just doing these regulatory functions. And then as you get older, it starts to, it continues to grow and mature and organize and build on new capabilities. And this, the, the organization of the brain, brain development really takes place all the way into young adult life. And so what we know is the speed with which the brain is changing is much faster early in life than it is later in life. And because of that, early developmental experiences have a disproportionate influence on this organizational process. And so what we know is that uh, intrauterine insults have a big echo, uh, early perinatal 
problems have a big echo in the way they impact subsequent development. And it really is because of the, the very, very critical and essential organizational processes that are taking place early in life. It's a little bit like, you know, I always try to use the, the analogy of building a, a skyscraper that the first uh, couple of months, the first, the early parts of development of the brain are a little bit like digging the foundation and putting in the superstructure, those big metal things, and then starting to do some of the fun foundational plumbing and wiring. And there's nothing functional about the building at this point, but everything you do up front will determine for the life of the building how well it functions. So if you happen to leave out plumbing, uh, you know, a, a, an essential element of plumbing, or you do a crappy job of wiring, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you build this huge building and you do everything and people are occupying it. And the ability to go back and sort of correct the wiring is extremely difficult. And this is why these early development experiences are so foundational and why they're so important. So one point, a big part of this podcast is to learn from one another. And I hope by listening, we can become more empathetic. You talk about how important being loved is in the human experience and that we are social species. We're supposed to be in community and that when we're not in community or we're not connected, that's a little bit when some issues start to arise. But now in our world, technology and that our digital devices have kind of taken over. Are you concerned at all about the lack of human to human contact? Yes, it's great to see you over Zoom, but I'm sure if it was in person and interviewing, you get a different feeling, your body right. reacts differently. Can you right. talk to us about why human experiences and that connectedness is so important and then also touch on how has the digital age, you know, changed that? Sure. The, if you look at the way human beings uh, function in the natural world, so to speak, let's say, you know, 10,000 years ago, the majority of human beings lived in small, multifamily, multi-generational groups. And these are pretty small groups, you know, 50 to 60 people and, there might have been sort of a kinship alliance with another band somewhere else and then maybe even a loose tribal alliance but it, by and large people grew up and we survived in these small small groups and when we're and because of that and because that's the way we've lived for 400,000 years our genetics are biased towards building systems that help us succeed in these small groups and now one of the great gifts of our species is, is our brain. And because we have a brain that is particularly a cortex, the top part of our brain, which is the most uniquely human part of us, this part of the brain can absorb more bits of information and store them than any other species on the planet. And because of that, we've been able to benefit from the accumulated experiences of previous generations. And so as as previous generations experience things and then invent things, they pass that on. And so the next generation doesn't have to spend energy and effort on inventing what's already been invented, they add to it, and then they add to it, and it becomes accumulative. And, and so all of the things that have been allowed by these inventions, you know, the invention of domesticating animals and cultivating crops. And so we, instead of having to hunt and gather, we're able to farm and herd. And so that means more people can live together in the same space because we, we don't have the calorie limitations to our population. And so as our groups got bigger, there was more exchange of ideas and more opportunity to invent. And there was this explosion in creativity. And, and so as human beings evolved, we moved further and further away from 
this multifamily, multi-generational community where there was very little privacy, lots of touch. We smelled each other. We would sit next to each other. We were just more sensory connected. But we started to invent things like my hut and your hut, and then my house and your house. And then the groups got so big that we didn't know everybody. So we got to the point where we would be around people, but we were not necessarily connected to them. And, you know, and again, people can know what, what's happened. Little by little by little, we've spent less time in close physical proximity with others. And uh, that means we have fewer repetitions with social practice. You know, any, any capability in the brain develops and matures with repetition, with practice. So the more words you hear in conversation, the more you get fluent and develop a good vocabulary. It's the same thing with relationships. The more opportunities you have to interact with another person and listen to them and study the nonverbal cues they're giving and, rec- and, and learn that, oh, they're bored or, oh, they're interested or, oh, they like me or, oh, they don't like me. All, all of those things, you learn those things, but you learn them through repetition and opportunities. And if you're having far fewer opportunities, that means that the social emotional parts of your brain are getting underdeveloped. And we see this, you know, we see that there are, you know, people that are graduating from college that go in and really don't even know how to have a conversation in an interview, in a job interview. And employers talk about this. They talk about, you know, we don't need, the problem isn't finding employees with hard skills. It's finding employees with soft skills. You know, the ability to be a team member, the ability to kind of communicate, the ability to sell a product, you know, all of that kind of stuff is related to the social environment. It's funny you say that, that um, like college graduates don't know how to interview or interact. I had a teacher who I loved in fifth grade who started every day where we would be standing up clapping and she would walk around the room, shake our hand and you had to look her in the eye. And if you came in with like a bad handshake, she would literally correct it. And every single day, all throughout fifth grade, that's how we started the day. And then, you know, on top of that, I remember my parents always saying, what do we say? Thank you, please. And shaking someone's hand, or when you're talking to someone, looking someone in the eye. And as I've grown up and in a different part of my career now and hiring, you look, you notice people don't do that or they don't know how to shake hands. And I think that I remember feeling uncomfortable, I think in fifth grade, starting the day like that, it was weird, but after a while it was empowering and you felt great when you were shaking your hand and looking at her because you got that respect back. And it's, you're talking about those cues and that story just like popped to mind. Now that's something I haven't thought about in years. But But when you- It's a great example of what I'm talking about, that, that practice, right? And again, you know, some people may say, well, you know, our society is changing and that's sort of a remnant of what, and it might be, but there are, the key point though, is that whatever our society's relational norms are, they have to be taught. They just don't, you know, if we let kids grow up and have them absorb passively these things, what they end up passively absorbing is this stuff they see on television. Because as human interactions have been decreasing, screen-based observations have been skyrocketing. So people will, you know, again, and I, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but there's a level of kind of that snarky sitcom conversational stuff. That's the way a lot of younger folks are learning about conversation. And rather than sort of a deep, respectful back and forth, people learn little quips. They learn how to be snarky. They learn, and it's because they've watched thousands of hours of sitcoms. You know, they've seen Sex in the City and Friends and and whatever whatever they're watching, but it's a, that's a very stylized form of communication. And if you look at repetitions, 
you know, if you if you grow up in a household where there is conversation and you have human to human opportunities for for interacting, the power of that will easily overcome what you see on television. But if you have relational poverty, like a lot of kids do, that they don't have enough real life experience to overcome the quips and the sarcasm that they're seeing on television. And so I think that we see that kind of, you know, we see now Twitter, the way people communicate, the majority, it's unbelievable how it's gotten to the point where you are supposed to convey a complex concept with 162 characters or whatever it is. And, and that we're all falling into that trap, you know, and, and so much of Twitter is these snarky little things, right? Trying to be cute, trying to be funny. And, and a lot of times it misses, you know, it hurts people and you didn't intend to hurt people, or you were just trying to be kind of funny. And, and I think it's all related to what we're talking about is that, you know, the kind of deeper relational listening and communicating is something that many people are not comfortable with and have not been introduced to. And I think we really desperately need to be better at it. Well, it's funny you say that because I'm a big, like I'm great at texting, but I would so much rather just pick up the phone and call you and have a conversation for five, seven minutes. And then, you know, be done with it where I have some friends who are like, Oh, like, please do like, you're the only one I talk to on the phone. I hate talking on the phone. I would rather text. And I'm just like, but so much can get lost in translation. And when you're looking at text or, you know, I'm not on Twitter, but like tweeting, you can read something. Five people can read something and have all different views of how it's coming across. And it can be offensive. It could be not the right thing. And then we kind of get into the cycle of, I'm going to hide behind my computer and make comments because it's not face-to-face. Whereas if you were face-to-face with someone, would you really say what you're saying on a post or in general? I would put money on it that you probably wouldn't because you knew those social cues would, you would be feeling weird telling somebody to their face what you're saying yeah. behind a screen. Yeah. No, I, I think you're spot on about that. And I think a lot of people when they sort of shoot off a text, they're, they're, they they regret it once they kind of get feedback from people that, wow, that was tone deaf, you know, on, you know, you know, people, and it happens all the time. There's these weird miscommunications. All human communication really is about repairing these little ruptures. Mm-hmm. Think about the person that you know the best, right? And that, that you care about and love the most and if you think about how many times you say something like i didn't mean that or let here this is kind of like this is what i'm trying to say or because you're all human communication is hard enough when it when you do have time and when you do have the luxury of being with somebody it just the further away you get the more likely you're going to have these these miscommunications and i honestly think that that's contributing to some degree to the polarization in our society right now Mm -hmm. i agree and i also know representation matters and when we're talking about the media or tv and what comes to mind is mental health Mm. and the stigma that comes by it and you see people will say certain things um online or make comments and I worry that that's hurting those who actually need help because you don't want, you know, people will say depression, you're weak, or um, why can't you get it together? Or what, what do you have to be depressed about? You have money, you have this, whatever it is, but that's where understanding what happened to somebody versus what's wrong with you. Why do you think we have such an issue navigating mental health in this, especially in this country. Well, it just, our organization has relationships with clinicians and programs in like 28 countries. And it's not just us. It's, you know, I think universally human beings feel uncomfortable when they feel vulnerable, you know, and 
the interesting thing about mental health is that elements of it are closer to what you would define as yourself, right? So like, I don't think of myself as my pancreas. You know, that's, that's kind of like, you know, it's pretty easy for me to go, that's ah, just part of me and my pancreas is not working right, so I'm going to fix it. But when you talk about your mind, right? Like, oh, the way I think, or, you know, my, I have a fear, I have this, I have an anxiety. And then it, it, so it's closer to who you are and, or the way you define yourself and the way other people define you. And so I think it's, it's just more, um, it, it's easier for us to be protective of the, that part of us and feel defensive about that part of us. And I think that that's part of what the stigma is. And I, again, it's one of the things I think the people in mental health, including me, kind of have missed when they do anti-stigma stuff is that they're not really addressing that. You know, they're not really addressing the fact that um, I can see why you don't want to talk about you know, this vulnerability or this vulnerability, because that's uh, part of the way you define yourself. Um, and so we need to figure out how to let people, we, we need a, a, a bigger tent, so to speak, where there's a broader cultural acceptance of a wide range of uh, peoples, right? Not everybody has to be good at math. So why do we teach math? It's like craziness. Like, who have you ever used the quadratic equation? No, it was funny. I was thinking about the other day. I haven't used most of what I've learned in like math or science. Like, when do you really use chemistry unless you're going to become a chemist or go into, you know, medicine? But you don't yeah. learn about emotional intelligence. Exactly. You don't learn right. about how to have uncomfortable conversations and get through them. Our way of having those is, you either don't or you find something else to occupy your time and swallow your feelings and say, it's fine. It's fine. But after a while, it's not fine. And I feel like a lot of us are walking around being like, I'm not fine, but I'm pretending I'm putting on that armor or that mask pretending I'm okay. But I will say the summer I was listening to the book, what happened to you on audible. And what I was doing a lot of walking and I remember I was crossing the street and there was some sentence or something in my head, just the light bulb went out off. And I was like, oh my God, yes, like, yes. And I took a note down in my phone to have a conversation with my therapist because something came up and I was like, this is why I act a certain way because something happened. And I feel like if people took the time to examine their past instead of running from it and realize, yes, there's nothing you can do about it. If you were brought up in a home that wasn't safe or healthier, there was issues, but you shouldn't let it ruin your future. And I think by us not examining or talking about it, we're only doing harm to ourselves moving forward. Yeah. You know, and it, it I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that would help that process that people feel more comfortable would be instead of teaching chemistry the way we teach chemistry, we should teach chemistry in context of nutrition. Like, so people should know, hey, you know, what are the things that are good for you? You know, what, what is a vitamin? You know, what's an amino acid? You know, what's things that are re really relevant to your life. What's dopamine? Or, exactly. Let's talk about chemistry in context of the chemistry of your brain or the chemistry of your muscles. You know, there, and I think if we, contextualize some of this stuff and it taught math in context of how do you understand uh, complex interest you know you want to here's i'm going to give you a credit card everybody gets a credit card let's see you know if you started kids in the third or fourth grade taught them about math in context of real life stuff number one it wouldn't feel so hard to learn and number two it would really serve them well as they got older what's but a credit just, score how exactly. do you not hurt your credit score? No one writes checks anymore. No one needs to know how to balance yeah. a checkbook, but they're still teaching that. And yeah. I, part of me wonders is 
are we doing this to still keep people in certain places because knowledge is power and education's power? And that's a <laughs> that's a whole separate. That's a whole different. That's a whole different conversation. Yeah, but that we I could just, have. But it I comes to it right. comes to yeah. mind to me because when you think about biology, you should understand hormones. You should understand um, your history and how that plays into biology. Um, yep. Yep. You know, dissecting a frog, it's cool, but like, is it really useful? No. Um, yeah. But I will say that I think you even mentioning talking about hormones, so you can understand if you're feeling depressed, like it's not something wrong with you. There's something going on in your brain. Maybe you're not getting the right vitamins. Maybe you're not eating something. Um, there's ways to fix it, but I think people are too afraid to say something's wrong because they yeah. look weak. Yeah. I, you know, it's, if we had a more, um, I think if we had, if people grew up and they felt better about themselves and felt that it was okay to be the way they are, then I think it would just be easier for all of these areas of stigma to just sort of melt away. But we are very judgmental about stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of the, you know, going back to the, the whole thing about the media, one of the things about the media is it creates a very narrow range of body type, everything that's kind of cool. And human beings, we just, you know, we just, there's a, something about us where we, um, we always sort of uh, put people up on a, on a pedestal and kind of aspire to be like them. And, and we, if we put those people that we aspire to be like, they're the ones that end up on our screens, but if they all look the same and, you know, literally if you could manipulate what the public thinks is beautiful by shifting what you have on the screen all the time. And I think that this is something that we have to have more dialogue about and be better at. And, it, it, you know, the most obvious version, version of where we've addressed this is around race. But I also think we need to do this about body type. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is if you look at eating disorders and you look at sort of uh, people's feelings about their their body size and their body shape and, you know, you, nobody feels good about their body. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know people that are incredible athletes look gorgeous and they still feel like, oh, you know, I, I need to lose a little bit of this or I need a better calf. You're like, what? Mm hmm. Like, who's looking at your calves? <laughs> and I think that starts at a really young age. I remember being yeah. younger and what was in was like the low rise jeans and Britney Spears. And I'm like, there's no way I'm ever going to look like that or be like that. And as a female, that I'm sure plays into certain feelings I have even now as an adult. I've interviewed a lot of people and uh, we do these prep calls. And I always ask this one question um, and everyone says the same answer, which is, I always, I never felt good enough. And I've had mm. people who are professional athletes and musical director of Hamilton and all these other people who you would look at from the outside and think, wow, they must feel great. But when you talk to them, they're like, I always kind of question, should I belong here? Am I good enough? Yeah. How to, even <laughs> when they're on like the starting yeah. line NFL game, he was like, yeah. you know, was I good yeah. enough? And I think when we start to talk about that, we realize everyone feels like that. And I would hope that it would open the door for us to be more of our authentic selves. And one thing I give Oprah a lot of props for in you in this book is it's hard to talk about what happened to you and the abuse and things that she experienced. But, and you would look at her and think you have money, you have fame, like you could do whatever you want, but her becoming humanized and being able to open up in a way where I think people could relate to that experience is important. And I would really hope that people who have that ability or that power open the door a little to kind of show others it's okay to be who you are instead of faking it all the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I think you're right, Mallory, about that. Uh, it's such an important area for everybody. And now the good news is, I think that there are little bits of progress being seen, you know, like when Simone Biles said, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm the best gymnast that ever lived on the planet. And I can't do this right now. And the same, I think that that's in tremendously good modeling for people. And 
to me, that was probably the most important thing she's ever done in her career. It, because I think it will lead to more enduring positive change in the world than her ostensible success as a remarkable gymnast. But I think we need more of that. And I, I do think that it's, I see it, it's um, certainly more than there used to be when I was, you know, a younger professional. And I think it's a good thing. Um, so we'll see, you know, I, I we, we still have a long way to go and it, it takes a long time for systems to change. You know, people change faster than the systems that we're in. And part of the dilemma, and you, you brought it up, is that it's this transgenerational process that the system influences the person. And even if they sort of rebel against elements of the system, the system is still pretty uh, influential in how they develop and function. And part of what we need to do is we need to be better at changing our systems. Like we brought up education, right? education has so many areas that it could improve. I mean, we have data and there's research studies that show, for example, that movement and exercise uh, and fit walking uh, promote cognitive acquisition of content. But what do we do to these kids? Don't move, don't talk, don't interact with each other, don't chew gum, don't wiggle. All these things that we know actually help people learn, we say don't do it. And I mean, I could go off on a whole tangent, but I, I do think that I, I am hopeful. I think that I think a lot of bright people are learning about these these areas, and I think there are a lot of really good things that are going on, and um, we'll make the world a better place. But it will make it. It's going to be incremental. It's, this is a transgenerational problem solving process. You stated that being kind to people literally has a physiological power explain that to our listeners i know it's important to be kind to people that's yeah. how i was raised but when you yeah. when it has that effect on your body you know i i mentioned we talked earlier about how human beings grew up in these smaller groups and part of the unique quality of our species is that we're we're, we're slow we're weak we don't have any natural body armor. We don't have any poisons that, you know, we don't sort of emit any dust or anything that can sort of throw off predators. We, we, we basically uh, survived in the natural world by forming groups. So both for hunting, for foraging, for protection, for procreation, the survival of our species is fundamentally dependent upon our ability to form and maintain relationships. And so it's a huge part of us. And so when we when we are with another human being and they project signs of acceptance and warmth, we literally physiologically feel safer. And, and the reward biology in our brain sort of gives us a little bit of reward. And so those things make us healthier. And so the tiniest little thing, even if you're kind to somebody that you don't know, that's giving them a little bit of a regulatory gift, a little bit of a reward gift. And, and because of the contagious nature of human beings, they will gift you back. And so being kind is as good for you as it is for the people you're kind to. And both parties of that kind interaction will have a positive physiological effect. Then the final question before we end with the th uh, three ones we always go The with. lightning round? <laughs> yeah. What are the uh, key takeaways you want readers to remember or learn from this book? I, I, I always sort of boil all this stuff down to, to people really remembering and how powerful and important they are that they matter, that the way they treat other people really, really matters. And as impossible as a systemic problem might feel or as challenging as, you know, helping somebody in incredible pain may seem, it's the moment where everything takes place. So if you can be present and 
compassionate and kind in a moment, it you are literally going to make a meaningful positive change, both for you and for the person you engage. So you uh, take advantage of these relational moments and, and everybody has them every day. You know, you have them with your kids, you have them with your partners, you have them with friends, you have them with strangers. And if we just sort of sort of let the inertia of the day carry us forward, we miss out on all these incredible transforming interactions. And that's what I that's the one thing is just slow down, live your moments, be present, and uh, and the world will give you good things and you will give good things to the world. So for our listeners, we're going to give away a few copies of what happened to you, because I think everyone should read it. It's interesting. It explains a lot and I think that it opens the door um for a lot of deeper conversations to be honest and I will say that after reading it now when I'm at dinner like my phone is not on the table and if I'm with someone I'm not on my phone and I've called out people saying like hey we're hanging out like if you want to be on your phone that's fine but I don't need to be here like be more in the moment I'm kind of echoing what you yeah. just said yeah. so yeah. the lightning round of questions um, the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Always be kind. Love it. The second one is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Uh, wow. I think I would relive the day that I climbed a mountain with my two sons, Mount Temple in Canada. How old were they when they did that? Oh, gosh, one was in the eighth grade and one was, I think he was a freshman in college. Yeah, this got to be a great memory for them, too. Yeah, I'm it, sure. was, yeah it was awesome. But then my favorite question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song uh, would you choose? A theme song? Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. What, what's, what would be a good theme song? I think I might pick uh one of marvin gay's songs uh the one about the environment was uh oh what is it i can't remember the name of the song it is here somewhere oh here we go i love this song what's it called mercy mercy all right so i'm gonna add that to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on spotify so it will get added with all our other guests and as you can imagine this playlist is all over the place but that's kind of what represents this podcast so you kind of hear everyone's different theme song nice i love it yeah well, i appreciate the opportunity thank no, you for having me i so appreciate it thank you so much i am having one of your um co-authors of some other books on later uh this month maya i did not know you guys had worked together until i really started yeah. uh researching because i am a very big advocate in talking about addiction especially around heroin i had a good friend of mine overdose and so when i read her book about undoing drugs i was just like we need to talk and then yeah, she and she's amazing she's yeah. she she is the person that i would trust most about this whole topic area yeah she knows and, a lot she's and she's a good good person yeah so i've been reading her books your books both your books together so Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a very busy man. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. 